As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. A content warning. This episode discusses pregnancy and abortion, so listener discretion is advised if this is a subject that you may find distressing. In this interview, we have used the term women, but we note that trans men, non-binary and gender diverse people experience pregnancy and abortion. Turned out he was a 47-year-old hermit who lived in isolated bushland and he had been planning this for months. 
had come down and set up camp in a Temple Stowe Park and then brought with him a bag, one bag with the rifle and one bag with all sorts of ghastly paraphernalia to incinerate the whole place. On the 16th of July 2001, a dishevelled man with murder on his mind arrived at the entrance of the Fertility Control Clinic in East Melbourne and shot dead security guard Stephen Rogers. What unfolded after the murder was a groundswell of action and years of legal wrangling to fight for abortion-safe access zones that went all the way to Australia's High Court. Our guests are clinical psychologist Dr Susie Allenson and writer and lawyer Lizzie O'Shea. Susie worked at the clinic that day of the murder, as she did every day, in her role as a clinical psychologist, counselling people about their reproductive options, including accessing abortions. Susie would often arrive at work at dawn to avoid the onslaught of protesters who'd congregate outside the clinic each day, harassing those who were entering, and over the years she and the other clinic staff had numerous threats against their personal safety. Lizzie represented the Fertility Control Clinic in the Supreme Court case to stop the harassment of staff and patients outside abortion clinics. They've detailed how one man's murder changed the future of women's rights in their book, Empowering Women from Murder and Misogyny to High Court Victory. Before we delve into the case, Dr. Susie Allenson, could you tell us about who you are and how you came to be involved with a crime known as the abortion clinic murder? What work were you doing at the time? Well, Emily, I was a clinical psychologist for almost 40 years and 26 of those years I spent at the Fertility Control Clinic in East Melbourne. I was brought on board to supervise the team of pregnancy counsellors that we had, but also to see women with more complex circumstances or the very small number of women who were undecided about what to do about a problem pregnancy. Because of the religious extremists standing on the footpath and harassing women directly outside the clinic, my job description did change a bit over the years. And Lizzie, where do you come into this story? What's your involvement with the reproductive and legal health space? So I've worked as a lawyer at Morris Blackburn Lawyers for a long time. And at the time I met Susie, I was working in the social justice practice, which does pro bono and public interest litigation. So with the Human Rights Law Centre, I was approached by the Fertility Control Clinic to represent them in a legal challenge to stop the harassment of staff and patients at the front of the clinic. And I've known so Susie since then, and Morris Buckman has represented her in different capacities, ending up all the way in the High Court uh, some years later. Susie, what happened on the 16th of July 2001, the day that a man called Peter James Knight arrived at the entrance of the Fertility Control Clinic in Wellington Parade, East Melbourne? Well, that Monday started off as a, as a normal day. Being a day procedure centre, the clinic's open early, starts soon after 7.30am and by shortly after 10am, patients, companions and staff were variously in the waiting room, consulting rooms, pathology, post-op rooms, all were being greeted at reception. Most theatre patients had arrived, so the religious extremists out the front of the clinic had left for the day. A rather unkempt and derelict sort of man came in 
And our security guard, Steve, had come inside and was he was about to leave for the day as well. But when he saw this man, Steve asked him, did he need any help? And they had a very brief conversation and then the man pulled out a shotgun and or a rifle and, and shot Steve. He then, this man then pointed the gun at a pregnant woman and the pregnant woman's partner, Sandro, tackled the man and another shot went off into the ceiling. Uh, Tim was a partner in the waiting room and he jumped in then and they both tackled the man to the ground. Another partner, Brett, picked up the rifle and ran it out of the clinic. That's that's a reasonably unemotional and brief version, but in reality it was really shocking. And those heroes, our heroes, Steve, Tim, Sandro and Brett, uh, as well as all the staff and family and, and so many people were, were really devastated. So what do we know about this Peter James Knight who by all accounts and what you've said, was intent on doing great harm that day. What was his background and what do we know about him? Well, it's, 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 it was kind of a strange situation because I know your listeners are probably keen on whodunits and it's about the detectives doing the work to actually find the killer. But with us, he was caught in the act and the police had him locked up quickly. But it was still a whodunit. He wasn't saying anything and no one knew who the heck he was and what his motives were for 10 weeks, 10 weeks. And the newspapers would have headlines like, who is Mr X? He he just wouldn't say anything. And that silence was really cruel to all of us who needed to understand what had gone on. We needed to make some sense out of all this in order to recover Anyway, turned out he was a a 47-year-old hermit who lived 70 k's away from Orange in New South Wales in isolated bushland, uh, built his own humpy and vegetable garden and, and dam, and he had been planning this for months, had come down and set up camp in a Templestowe Park and then got on his bike this Monday morning and uh, and uh, brought with him a bag, one bag with the rifle and one bag with all sorts of ghastly paraphernalia to incinerate the whole place. And how did he particularly zero in on your clinic? Was he trying other clinics or how did he know about it? Look, he'd had a beef about um, a range of issues actually and then he'd got caught up with abortion being a a great sin. And my understanding is that he was actually really angry about um, Telstra and Telstra advertising abortion services, and he was going to go to Telstra. And when he looked them up, he saw that in Wellington Parade, there was not only Telstra, there was the fertility control clinic. Because we didn't really understand why did he come all that way down to Victoria when he was in New South Wales. And so on this podcast, we particularly like to talk about the people impacted by crime. And we we have to talk about Stephen Rogers, who died that day, was murdered that day. 
Tell us about Steve and also how is he remembered today? I know we're going to get further into the the ripple effect of this crime, but tell us about Steve. Well, Steve had only been at the clinic a couple of months as our security guard, but look, he had he had a lovely smile and he was very calm and a bit cheeky. He'd had he was a bit of a larrikin in his youth, I think, and he was over six feet tall. And I always found him very reassuring because the extremists, if if I went out at all, the extremists would come and walk beside me and say very unpleasant things to me about being a murderer, etc. And I always found Steve really good. His his calmness was terrific out the front there. And I'm sure that he helped a lot of women feel much calmer after having to run the gauntlet uh, to get to the into the clinic. He was 44. He was a father, a son, a, a partner, a husband. He was a protector and a friend to, to many people. So up until that day on the 16th of July 2001, what was the level of harassment and protests that abortion clinics saw from Right to Life campaigners and other parties? Was it always the religious extremists and fringe elements? What were women and and other people facing on a daily basis? I'll ask both of you, Susie and Lizzie, to answer to that. So I came into this issue or this particular situation because we were pursuing a claim to say that there was nuisance at the front of the clinic. And nuisance is a legal concept. It's a civil tort. It's a civil wrong, but there's also a statutory form of nuisance. It's contained in the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. But it doesn't really kind of capture what actually was going on out the front of the clinic, that word, I don't think. So in the course of this case, we documented that extensively and put it before the judge. Uh, and so it was obviously really impacting both patients and staff of the clinic. I don't know if you can imagine what it must be like to go to work every day and be told you're a horrible person, that you're a murderer, and to feel frightened for your well-being as you walk through the front doors of your workplace. It's a terrible experience, I can imagine. And I know that when we first started looking at this case, that the managers of the clinic were quite concerned about the well-being of staff and felt like this was an important step to take to send a message that they were they were caring about their staff and, and wanted to make sure they were doing the right thing by them in trying to stop this kind of behaviour. And then what we also knew from investigating this issue and gathering evidence is that it has a real impact on women who are going to seek this treatment. Uh, it can impact their recovery times. It obviously impacts them at the time. And it can be a deterrent to accessing essential medicine, essential health services. Uh, so a big impact on the health of women who are seeking a lawful health service in the form of an, a, an abortion, but also for other kinds of treatments who might be there not for an abortion at all, but feel uh, deterred from coming through and running that gauntlet. And then obviously a huge impact on staff. Yes, look, it was absolutely chronic and it wasn't protest. It was harassment of women. It was haranguing them. It was showing them images that were really graphic and distressing. It handing out leaflets saying that the contraceptive pill caused cancer, that abortion would break down your marriage, you'd never recover emotionally. There was all sorts of misinformation uh, and they would get into women's face and space. And, you know, there's a, a many women who have a history of being a, a victim of violence, of course, and for those women in particular that, that could be devastating. For staff, 
We felt really helpless. We felt it was incredibly unfair. This was happening out on a public footpath and authorities wouldn't do anything, which seemed to be saying everyone thought it was fine that women were treated in this way. The other thing was that the religious extremists had a hold on the language and the viewpoint. So it was up to us to start speaking up from a woman-centred point of view. The religious extremists said, oh, we're providing counselling on a public street without any confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera, and where the uh, client was in fact the pregnancy, not the woman concerned. So uh, they said, we're here to help. But from women's point of view, it was not that at all. It was incredibly distressing. And much later on, we had a master's student, Alexandra Humphreys, carry out some research. And so then we had research data which showed that one in five women were being actually blocked from going in the entrance. And there was no doubt that it was harmful to them emotionally. The other thing was that as part of the Supreme Court case led by Maurice Blackburn, four staff members were assessed by a psychiatrist and that also showed just how damaging it was to staff. And did you attend the trial of Knight? Yes, I did, but only for a couple of days. It went for four days in the Supreme Court The gunman represented himself. Uh, All the evidence went unchallenged. He declined to cross-examine any witness or call any witnesses, and he didn't take the stand. But what he did do was to address the jury, if you can call it that. He shouted and denigrated and ridiculed every witness, the prosecution team and the judge. And after all the silence, it was really shocking to hear his fury and grandiosity and narcissism come through in that way. And it must have been shattering to the witnesses. I was sitting next to one of the witnesses who had been incredibly traumatised by the tragedy. And I could see that she was feeling as if she'd done all the wrong thing in the witness box because he was using her name and tearing apart everything that she'd said. Uh, I I tried to reassure her that she'd done nothing wrong, that he was just a bully, and I wanted everyone to stand up and, and leave and deny him the audience that he was grandstanding to. In the end, that's exactly what I did. I, I couldn't take it anymore. In the end, he was sentenced to uh, life imprisonment, 23 years at a minimum, and Shortly afterwards, uh, I think he he ended up in the psychiatric ward. I do remember the photo of him from that time on the front of the newspaper, and he certainly looked dishevelled and pretty chaotic. That that stands out in my mind. Well, uh, that's the way he was on the day that he perpetrated this disgraceful violence in the court. He, he was clean shaven. His hair was clean. He looked completely different. It was, it was quite discombobulating uh, to see him in that way. And he looked so much younger too. Now, the story doesn't end there with the conviction of him for the murder of Stephen, because you both have written a book and 
Susie, you actually wrote a book about the abortion clinic murder that's being republished, but you've both written a book now called Empowering Women from Murder and Misogyny to High Court Victory because the murder of Stephen Rogers actually set the wheels in motion for something pretty legally incredible. So can you give us a glimpse of the details you describe in the book about this? Lizzie, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that that murder probably was a tipping point for staff in the fertility control clinic. And even though I think the fertility control clinic provides a really important essential health service and it's a very supportive place for women who need reproductive health care, um, there was a view that the outside had come in and invaded the clinic and that the policy position that we had in relation to abortion and how you access it was uh, affecting the ability to deliver really good healthcare. I mean, Susie can talk more about that, but ultimately where that gets to is a campaign led by Susie working with lots of other people to decriminalise abortion, which was an essential first step, and that happens in 2008 with an Act of Parliament after a long public discussion about this issue, which was a great first step. But I think it's fair to say that uh, Susie and other staff at the clinic always knew that that was only one component of what they needed to achieve legally to protect staff and patients. And so the end game was always safe access zones. That is a protective bubble around the clinic so that when people come and go, they're not subjected to this kind of harassment. And for too long, uh, there were people that were supposed to look after this who who didn't. For too long, it was a problem that was easily ignored. But gradually, through campaigning and through meeting lawyers and putting together a really good legal team, the Fertility Control Clinic decided in partnership with the lawyers to go to the Supreme Court and demand that the Melbourne City Council do the thing that they're required to do at law and address what was called the noxious nuisance, so the harassment of staff and patients, which is where I come in. So I worked with Susie and we took the case to the High Court. We led evidence about the harassment that was going on out the front of the clinic and put it squarely before the judge that the Melbourne City Council weren't doing the job that they needed to do, that they needed to address this. They have powers to do so under the um, Public Health and Wellbeing Act and they're there for the council to address exactly these kinds of problems. And that was what we put before the Supreme Court. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Susie, do you want to tell us a bit more about what's in the book? Obviously, we want people to read it, but just give us a bit of a glimpse into what evolved after the murder of Stephen. Well, that's when our campaigning started and, and I was very unsuccessful for many years until I did find uh, Emily Howie at the Human Rights Law Centre who then found Lizzie O'Shea at Morris Blackburn and and we went ahead with, with this case. The other thing that occurred was that in around 2004, uh, a group, uh, Women's Health Victoria, led a renewed abortion law reform association and I was asked to be part of that and I my whole network grew incredibly and I got to meet wonderful women women in who knew what they were doing uh, and that sort of collective kept on growing and every woman there worked so hard and then there were cross-party politicians who forced through the abortion decriminalisation in 2008 and after that the Women's Health Victoria organised an abortion working group so that we continued to get support and gathered evidence. So we had this, we had these fabulous women that were in our corner that I could call on at any time about anything and get support with our legal team as well. Our legal team was absolutely in our corner going into bat for us. They totally understood where we were coming from, could see things from our point of view. Lizzie, I don't know, would you like to speak about the fact that we actually lost that Supreme Court case, but the plus pluses that eventuated from that? Yeah, so we when we got to the Supreme Court and we're agitating about the problems, harassment out the front of the clinic, Ultimately, the judge ruled against us. We were unsuccessful and I I don't like to lose cases, I have to tell you, and I know clients don't like it when they lose either. But what transpired from that was that it was clear that there was nothing more the Fertility Control Clinic could do to itself address the problem of harassment of staff and patients. It had been agitated in a court and the court had ruled against them. So the only option to deal with this harassment was really legislative reform and that became clear from this case. So then we had, fortunately, Fiona Patton, someone who was passionate about this issue, who'd just been elected to state parliament and was prepared to agitate on behalf of the clinic and other providers and and patients of the clinic as well 
to introduce sapexisone. So it's a really interesting case because you can see how law is made by judges, but it's also obviously made by parliaments and how the two work together and sometimes come into conflict. So ultimately what the parliament did was introduce, once Fiona had tabled this private member's bill, she uh, got support from major parties and a cross-partisan group of women who advocated for this reform to take place. And it was introduced and passed in Victoria. So it was a huge achievement. Of course, as you can imagine, those harassers who uh, stood out the front of the clinic challenged this law. They said it was unconstitutional. And ultimately, that went all the way to the High Court. I'm sure your listeners know, but in the Constitution, there is an implied right of freedom of political communication. And the claim was that this law unfairly, inappropriately impeded upon that implied right. Uh, and this is something that I feel really strongly about. I'm a big supporter of protests. I'm a big supporter of uh, organisations using this kind of activity. to. It's part of a flourishing democracy. And I think everybody in the clinic would agree with that, for example. And so I think the right to freedom of association and to protest and speech are really important. All these rights are really important. I don't think that that's what the issue is in relation to harassment of staff and patients at the clinic. In fact, women have the right to access healthcare free from harassment. And the people who stand out the front harassing women, they're not actually doing it because they want to protest and change the law and participate in democracy. They're deliberately trying to intimidate people from accessing a lawful health service. So those are the kinds of arguments that we got to make in the High Court, uh, which was, of course, really satisfying. I love this case because it's got a little bit of everything. It's got courtroom drama, organising in Parliament, women coming together, forcing people to do their jobs, even when they might otherwise be reluctant. So it's got a little bit of everything, starts in the Supreme Court with a loss, ultimately ends with the High Court victory, which is a great outcome. Well, you mentioned courtroom drama and there sounds like there's plenty of it. Lizzie, tell me about maybe one of the real standout dramatic moments of the courtroom drama. Uh, Well, I personally think what was really satisfying about my involvement in the case was to have the evidence collected and put on the public record. So, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I have a very close relationship with my client. I had to talk Susie into going to see and get assessed by an independent psychologist to document the kind of impact of this treatment. And that's a, you've got to have a relationship of trust with your client in order for them to agree to do that because it's very personal and it was very invasive. And I remember Susie being very worried that she would be cross-examined, that the other side would try and take apart this evidence. And there was a great moment where they basically just said, we're not going to cross-examine you at all. That evidence is accepted. And it was very gratifying because it's nice when your clients place trust in you and you get them through a difficult moment and you get a, a on-the-record evidence that this is a really serious problem and that it needs to be fixed. So that was nice. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff that we document in the book around the High Court case, including various snide comments from judges, which I always like, uh, usually about the lawyers who are representing the um, harassers. But it's a nice little dynamic. And Susie did the drafting here and she's done it really well. She's kind of set it up as a nice little story. It's like a dance between the justices and the, and the lawyers who are speaking. And it's uh, a nice little story about how, what it looks like to be in a courtroom, especially the high court, which is obviously courtroom on, on steroids, and to see the dynamic between really sharp legal minds who are at the peak of their careers and watch how they tackle these complex issues. Susie, Lizzie mentioned that you had to document the impact all of this had on you and the continued problems you had just trying to do your job every day. What kind of impact did it have on you? 
oh, do I really need to go there? Uh, do you want to hear about teeth grinding or migraine or the blood pressure that our senior counsellor and, and medical director, Louis Rutman, used to have uh, and now don't? Uh, you know, there was a great deal of impact. We're trained to be empathic. And so we would worry about our patients and we would get angry about how shocking this was, that no one was protecting these women uh, and felt helpless in doing anything about it. So it, it, it was just an ongoing teeth grinding, angry sort of scenario where we felt like we were banging our heads up against a brick wall until we found fabulous young women like Lizzie O'Shea and then everything changed. Were you fearful for your personal safety during this, both of you? I mean, you know, you were up against people who really, really believe that what they're doing is right. So tell us a little bit about that impact. Well, I guess I, I always took precautions. I work under a different name from my family name. There were a whole raft of, of steps that, that staff would take. I remember after the abortion decrim. I was sitting in Parliament House and after it was announced that the bill had passed, uh, the anti-abortion people there started yelling and ranting and raving and then at the very end when people were leaving, they were being interviewed and I can remember running down the long, long steps at the front of Parliament House and just looking over my shoulder the entire time, the entire time till I got to the car. So, yes, there are, but you've got to live your life. You've got to try and do what the decent thing is. And after the shooting, like all staff, I'd had to have some heavy conversations with my own family, with my children, uh, my husband. You know, we had staff members whose families wanted them to to stop working. But, look, you've got to, you've got to get out there, don't you? What about you, Lizzie? I, I'm, I'm probably pretty naive about this and I wasn't worried for myself. I mean, I do know about these things and I take them really seriously. I knew about George Tiller, you know, who was a provider of, of abortions in the US who was assassinated. I think this kind of violence is so disgusting. I do think my anything that I was worried about paled in comparison to what uh, those staff members at the clinic had been through. And I have such respect for the commitment they show to their job. I do actually think reproductive health care and terminations is life-saving medicine. It actually saves women from horrible deaths through septicemia, which is what used to happen when abortion was largely done in, in backyards, and it gives them their life back. It gives them the options to choose how their life will be lived. So I think it's really important to remember that, that, there, that there's a huge number of women's lives who've been saved by the provision of safe abortion and the legalization of that service and so the bravery that lots of staff have shown really impressed me and and I think anything that I might be worried about really pales in comparison. Susie you mentioned the the decriminalization of abortion for our listeners can you just quickly describe what that meant? Lizzie might be better at this than me but basically abortion had been in the criminal code uh, as if it was a crime and there had been decisions made by Judge Menhennet that meant that women could legally have an abortion basically if the risks to them of, of continuing a pregnancy outweighed the risks to them of terminating the pregnancy. That was basically what it was. It was all rather ambiguous. And so the decrim was about dragging the laws of abortion 
into the 21st century uh, and into a world where people expected that women should be able to access abortions safely and that doctors should be able to practice without fear of being sent to prison. So it completely it took it out of the Crimes Act and made it uh, clear. Lizzie, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think decriminalisation was important politically because it allowed there to be a public debate about this particular service, this particular form of medical treatment, and to have a public discussion about why the legislature was removing it from the criminal law books and introducing a regulated set of provisions which determined how you could receive it. It's important politically because I think it neutralises some of the opposition. It gives clarity to doctors. It gives clarity to patients as well who might be seeking this service. The other thing I'd point out is the criminal provisions were not just a dead letter. They weren't something that were largely ignored and many people still accessed abortions. In Queensland, people might recall, some of your listeners might remember, there was a young couple that were prosecuted for procuring abortion when they used IU486, so the abortion drug, to to terminate a pregnancy. They were prosecuted in court because... uh, Queensland still criminalised abortion at the time, which has since changed. But um, it's a curious situation because the provision was from the 19th century. It talked about administering a noxious substance in order to procure an abortion. And ultimately, they got off the the offence on the basis that they weren't administering something noxious because it was a lawful drug in large parts of the world, but also it was considered safe by organisations like the World Health Organisation. And so it's this very curious situation where... Most people support abortion. There's lots of lawful, safe ways in which to obtain it. And there's these archaic laws that sit on the books and you can have prosecutorial discretion where where individuals may be prosecuted in a way that doesn't reflect community values. So decriminalisation, even though it wasn't often prosecuted, was a really important step to give clarity to staff and patients, uh, to protect women to allow them to access health services that were essential in a safe environment. And ultimately regulating it in the way that Victoria does, I think is a really good model for other parts of the world. So now people, groups cannot congregate right outside the clinics. But is it still happening? I mean, is it moving online, the harassment? How is it being played out? Well, I'm not much of a social media person. I've deliberately stayed off uh, in part because of where I, I used to work. So I, I can't really speak to that. All I know is that safe access zones have rolled out around Australia. Uh, so to my mind, that's wonderful. And it's a wonderful validation of women. If women can't control their fertility, they can't control anything about their life. So it, it, it is so central to how women can lead their lives. And so the murder of Stephen Rogers really was the catalyst for this. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say, yes. I mean, Steve should never have died, but part of what this book is 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 a tribute to all the women who have worked so hard for this, but also a, a tribute to Steve and that his sacrifice led to something incredibly important. The other thing I would say is I think this book really is a testament to people like Susie and others who've worked really hard for this issue. I mean, Susie's a psychologist. She was providing healthcare services and she took it upon herself to take on this issue and start campaigning for it. And I think it's a really important story of how you can make a difference uh, when you take a stand 
and how you do that, how you look for allies, how you bring together a really diverse team of people, how you work with both parliamentarians and with lawyers, uh, how you work with frontline health workers if you're a lawyer as well. That really cross-disciplinary nature of this campaign I think was really important. And Also then, that this kind of campaign happened at the right time. We had women in positions of power who made decisions, I think, that were much more sympathetic to women than if those roles had been taken up by men. So I guess I think that Steve's death was absolutely the catalyst for this kind of change, but it requires so many people to execute on that and so much organising work that really gets celebrated that we tried to really document and celebrate it in this book. Finally, Any last thoughts on it? I mean, in 2019, the High Court decision happened. So it took took years, didn't it? I don't think you want to know my thoughts on that. I still don't understand why did it take so long to just do the decent thing? I I think, and and look, I look at all the women now who, who are speaking up about federal parliament, for example, Julia Banks and Brittany Higgins, And I think they're speaking up good on them, but it's at tremendous cost. And what has changed? Nothing's changed yet. So I guess what we're hoping to say too is is keep going, keep going. We will get it to change. Anything final from you, Lizzie? Maybe the last thing I would say is absolutely persistence is such a vital component of anyone who wants to try and change the law and change the world for for the better. You absolutely have to keep trying because you never know when your opportunity might arise. One thing I would say about abortion is we've seen a global trend towards liberalisation. It's not entirely uniform, but the last 20 years, uh, as a global trend emerges, it's very similar to what's happened in Australia. So I think we are on the cusp of making significant gains in this field in in a progressive direction. The one exception is probably the United States, or it's the most obvious exception, I think, because it's a similar country to ours. They had a court case in 1973, which nominally legalised abortion, but the, the subsequent 50 years that have passed have seen constant retreats and cutbacks on that right. And I think we're the kind of opposite story where we never had it enshrined in a court case, so we had to kind of make our own way into the courts, into the parliaments to get this law changed. And in doing so, we opened a dialogue with all, all different types of people, which made the movement stronger, and we built this kind of neural network of women who can organise and speak out about the right to reproductive health care and can defend any gains that we've made and, and make sure that that right is actually accessible for women who don't live in city areas. And that's a really key ingredient of long-lasting, sustainable change. Uh, so it's really easy, but uh, in our instance, I feel like it was much better than if we'd gotten some kind of uh, you know, court case many years ago that enshrined that law and, and could have meant that we became complacent about it or or it could have activated the right in a way that we didn't want it want it to happen. So I'm really grateful we had to do this work, even though I think we shouldn't have to on one level, because I think there's lots of benefits long term in terms of our capacity to defend what we've gained and continue to, to enshrine women's rights to, to look after their own reproductive health and make decisions about their body. Thanks to our guest today, Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea. The book Empowering Women from Murder and Misogyny to High Court Victory is available now and there's a link in our show notes for this episode. If you have found anything discussed in this episode distressing, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au. There's links to other support services related to the content in this episode in the show notes. 
This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.